An ambiguous loss is a loss that lacks clarity or resolution. The one that is probably the most relevant to the audience of this podcast is someone who is physically present, but psychologically absent or so changed that they seem like they're gone. So a phrase that can help with understanding is gone, but not gone. Gone, but not gone. How well that sums up ambiguous loss, living with the cycle of grief caused by severe mental illness. Our guest on this podcast is the Family Resource and Advocacy Manager at the Treatment Advocacy Center, and she can help with your ambiguous loss. Welcome to our podcast, Schizophrenia, Three Moms in the Trenches, from the place where schizophrenia and real life collide, East Coast, West Coast, Middle America, with Miriam Feldman, Mindy Greiling, and Randy Kay. This is episode 85. When I look at these numbers, it's just so amazing. We've been going, this is our fourth season, and we're so happy you've joined us here for Schizophrenia, Three Moms in the Trenches. We are three moms. We each have a son with schizophrenia. We have daughters as well. We have families. We've been through probably what you're going through, and we've each written a book about our journeys, and we continue the journey to advocate and help others with this podcast. I want to mention a couple of things before we begin And one is, if you've been following the podcast, you know that my son, who I call Ben in my book, Ben Behind His Voices, he's been incarcerated pre-trial for nearly seven months now. And I finally just wrote an article about it on LinkedIn, and I put it on Substack as well. Just like, okay, people, this is enough. Like, he's had time to figure it out. He's going to go to jail diversion. I'm hoping it's going to be a fresh start for his life. But if you're interested and you don't know about Substack, Substack is a platform where people can post articles, post writings, post podcasts, although we don't use it for that purpose. And if you go to substack.probably.com um, and you search for me, Randy K, R-A-N-D-Y-E-K-A-Y-E, if you want to follow my writings, just you know, sign out as, as a free subscriber. You can sign on. Some people want to be a paid subscriber and... I don't have any special content yet, but eventually I will. I think I have three paid subscribers at this point, but just it's totally free. If you want to read the article, it's on there also on LinkedIn. The other thing I wanted to mention, and I'm not going to monopolize anymore, is this new book. It's called Daring to Breathe. Now, actually on Amazon, there are two books about dealing with grief. We will be talking in a minute about ambiguous loss, but this is a book, Stories of Living with the Foreverness of Grief. And these are two women, Armin Bacon and Nancy Miller, whose first book came out at the same time mine did, like 10 years ago, and they each have lost a child. And so they developed an email friendship, and out of that came this book. And this is a collection of essays from many contributors. If you're watching on YouTube, I'm holding it up and I'm one of them. So that's why I'm mentioning it. So my essay about the grief of losing who your child was, but he's still there is a different kind of grief. And they were kind enough to ask me to write something. I think it's on page 84. So check out this new book, Daring to Breathe. We all continue to write. We all continue to contribute to anthologies and uh, coming up soon. Check the Facebook page for the date. 
we will have an episode where you can be on our Zoom call with us and ask us questions. And that's all I have to say. Mindy, Mimi, anything, any updates from you guys? Well, before I do a quick update, I just want to say I did go to substack.com or somehow it popped up. I don't think I even had to go there. And your essay, Randy, is wonderful. And I'm really glad, being, as you know, a former legislator, that you are now at the point where you're going to consider, and I hope you do, contact legislators. Because unless they hear from people about family members being in jail for no good reason, not even, nothing has ever been stuck in terms of a crime. And that's really the long past the point where legislators should hear about it. But wonderful article. I hope people read it. My update is just that Jim is no longer having seizures. He's not falling down. He's not dropping everything under the sun, including glasses of sticky juice all over the house because he's finally, once again, got his clozapine stabilized. He stopped smoking, he stopped using snus, and he stopped using all of his supplements and green powders and things. And it just took a while. And then he started using e-cigarettes. So all those things affect clozapine. And he's finally walking like a regular person. So we celebrate. That's That's wonderful. wonderful. And if you've read Mindy's book, Fix What You Can, you know, this may sound like a fairy tale to you, but believe me, this family has not lived a fairy tale, but it's good to know that there's hope. And Mimi? Well, Nick's doing well. His clozapine levels are bouncing around a bit. We're not quite sure what's going on, showing a few breakthrough symptoms, but I think think we're going to be okay. Okay. And, you know, lest you think that this is a total clozapine podcast, there are other medications that work well. Many of our listeners and our guests who are success stories have written to remind us that there are other medications that for them work quite well, and we don't want to discount. Basically, we want you to find what works. But the reason we talk about clozapine is that so many people never get it prescribed because it's a little more difficult. And we want that to be part of what could be prescribed if that's the treatment that helps your loved one. Right. And I always put in here, we want people to be able to know because a lot of people didn't, including Mimi. She's shared that in her story, that it is the best antipsychotic for the vast majority of people. Yeah. So, and we have episodes on that. And speaking of past episodes, and Jerry, you can go ahead and turn your, unless you want to make a grand entrance in 10 seconds, we are delighted to welcome a return guest, Jerry Clark. Now, Jerry first joined us uh, back on episode 32, when there's the full version of her family's story there. That episode is called Channeling Grief and Anger into Advocacy and Acceptance. And now she's working with the Treatment Advocacy Center. And if you want to know more about that, see episode 71 with Kathy Day. But Jerry's role is as Family Resource and Advocacy Manager. She's got a fellowship with Tax DJ Jeffy Advocate this year. And in case you haven't seen episode or listened to episode 32, she's a family member whose son with SMI, serious mental illness, died from suicide. So welcome back, Jerry. Thank you for having me. And I would just insert before we get to Jerry that we've also had from TACT Lisa Daly, who's the executive director, and we had Sabah Muhammad, who is an incredible uh, staff member there as well. And she talked about um, racial racial balance and equity as well as mental health issues. 
Awesome. So I will look up those episode numbers and include them in the show notes as well. Yeah, we're we're big fans of TAC. So um, we're here talking about ambiguous loss, and that is a big topic and ways that you can help people. But just take a minute and refresh us uh, about your story and about Calvin and how you came to your present job at TAC. Sure. So uh, my son showed his first psychotic symptoms when he was a 19-year-old college student, and I learned quickly that help was going to be really, really difficult to get, and it was going to be very difficult to convince him to want that help. Um, So like all of you, I learned through the School of Hard Knocks that if I was going to help him, I was probably going to have to help change the system. So I got involved in advocacy really from the get-go, started my own grassroots movement in Washington State called Mothers of the Mentally Ill, um, Mommy, and through that work did some legislative advocacy work and just started, started to get to know people, including Lisa Dalia at Treatment Advocacy Center. She was director of advocacy at the time and has since become the executive director. So I started getting to know those in the advocacy world. And when this opportunity um, opened up last April, I actually started working for TAC last April 1st. Um, It was a really natural transition for me to start working with families across the country in attempting to navigate the very disjointed system. But in the in the process of doing that, um, it's been very clear that I also would really like to help families with their own coping. Um, I, I do what I can to help them navigate in a very complicated and often unworkable system. Um, And it it helps me and and my life goals to also know that maybe I've helped a family member feel a little bit better in their own skin. Um, So what I do is not just help them help their loved one, but try to help them help themselves. So this project became a natural fit for me. As I was onboarding with TAC and helping to create our new Family Resource Center, which went live in January, brand new um, Joan C. Scott Family Resource Center is on TAC's website. Uh, But I helped develop those resources. um, And as we were developing the resources, it became clear that I also wanted to include resources to help families cope with this super complex emotional roller coaster that that we're all on. And I had heard about ambiguous loss while my son was still living and recognized it immediately as what I was experiencing, that I was experiencing this grief as though my son had died because he was so far removed from the son that had been my son all of his life. And so I felt like I was experiencing a death at the same time I was trying to save his life. And the ambiguity of that was very confusing. 
And somebody taught me the term ambiguous loss, and it was like a light bulb. I thought, that's what this is. This is an ambiguous loss. And the grief that I'm feeling related to this loss is very much like the grief I would experience if somebody that I love deeply had died. But I didn't have any place to put that grief because there's no societal norms for how to deal with it. So when I was onboarding at TAC and I was working on the resources for the library, I thought I would like to write something about ambiguous laws as one of our family coping articles for the, for the new website. And so we did a little bit of research and located Dr. Pauline Boss, who coined the term back in the 70s and has written several books on the topic and located her email address. And I emailed her at uh, the University of Minnesota. And mostly I was asking, um, do you have any research that's specifically related to the ambiguous losses for those who are impacted by severe mental illness? And she wrote back and said, I assume you're asking this question because you'd like to teach on the topic because we need, <laughs> we need a lot more people teaching on this topic. I'm 87 years old and I need more people who are invested in sharing information on this really important topic. And um, my response to her email was, yes. I think I am interested in that. And so I was able to attend her online course at the University of Minnesota and get a certificate um, having gone through the, the whole course, the online course, which included exams. <laughs> and um, from that course, I started to develop the materials that Treatment Advocacy Center is sharing. So at this point, we do have an article on our website in the Family Resource Center. And I know those links will be part of the notes from this podcast. Um, and there's also a video on TAC's YouTube channel that provides an overview of what ambiguous loss is and what the coping strategies are. Jerry, before, yeah. Jerry, before you go on, can I just share, I mentioned this to you ahead of time. Um, Dr. Boss is from Minnesota. I have never had the pleasure of meeting her or interacting with her as you have, Jerry, taking a class and so forth. Um, but she did, she's on the front page of my alma mater. I got my master's degree from the University of Minnesota. And you said 87 years old. She's a very vital 87-year-old person. And there's like uh, six pages that are on all the things she has done, but also all the things she's still doing. So she is just a role model, a role model for all of us. And and yeah. you mentioned her in your in your book as well in the last couple of pages and in, in fix what you yeah have. thank so you I do I I also just like Jerry was referred to um, by actually her next door neighbor who was my book mentor and he lived next to her and her husband and uh, her husband has now died but he was a good friend of my book mentor so he, uh, Paul has suggested that I read I just read the first book ambiguous loss so I summarized that and learned, um, learned a lot of things about it. And it fit exactly what I was going through. I felt like Jim died like at least three or four times 
three times for the suicide attempts, which were very serious. Another time when he jumped off the building, broke his back, but also actually every time he had a relapse <laughs> and ended up in jail or wherever he ended up, just multiple deaths. So ambiguous loss is huge in terms of describing what we're going through. So I'm really glad you're teaching about this, Jerry. The heart behind the I'm on podcast is storytelling because every mom has a story to tell. I know that when I talk to my friends who are parenting and we share stories, we all end up feeling less alone and more capable of loving our kids well. You can find information everywhere on the internet. Some is bad parenting advice and some is pretty wise. We like to think there's a lot of wisdom on imom.com. And when you combine that signature wisdom with a great story, it brings parenting to life. We want a mom who's listening to see herself and her kids in these stories and rest in the confidence that she is the perfect mom for her kids. Check out the iMom podcast with new episodes every Monday. Yeah, this is the the book. The book. If this is helpful, I don't know if my camera's good. It's enough. blurry. Yeah, we well, can't see. It. Can't, the camera's not. on blur. You got a blurred background, so. so that's why I have to be. Yeah. Okay, I'll find an image about. of it and put it on the YouTube. But what is the name of the book? If you tell it's us, it's called that. "Loss, Loss, Trauma, and Resilience: Therapeutic Work with Ambiguous Loss." And that's uh, Dr. Pauline Boss's book. Correct. Okay. I'm really glad there's another book because the one I read really hardly mentioned mental illness. So that one is more exactly about mental illness. No, it's not. It's oh, not. Okay. So when I reached out and asked for any specifics uh, about severe mental illness and the specific ambiguous losses related to SMI, um, she was able to point to a few sections in the book that do mention um, mental illness, but it's the book is much broader than that. So the project that I'm doing is kind of taking it to a new realm. Um, and I think it's it's really vastly important because of that. Because so I we haven't really defined what ambiguous loss means yet. And I'd love to do that before we go too much further so people aren't confused about what we're talking about. Please do. Um, so an ambiguous loss is a loss that lacks clarity or resolution. So some examples of losses that lack clarity or resolution. The one that is probably the most relevant to the audience of this podcast is someone who is physically present, but psychologically absent or so changed that they seem like they're gone. So a phrase that can help with understanding is gone, but not gone. So when someone is gone, but not gone, they are physically present, but psychologically or cognitively, or in the case of schizophrenia, it might be a, a bit of both psychologically and cognitively gone or so forever changed that it feels like they're, they're that at least that person that you used to know is gone. There's a new place. There's a new person there. But the person that you knew before is is feels like they're gone. So you that's know, the most really common. true to me is what you said about um, about the societal norms. Because you see, that's what I remember twenty years ago when Nick first got sick. 
first of all, like I've said, people weren't really talking about these things very much then, but I was in this crazy limbo of I've lost my son, but I haven't lost my son. And I need to grieve this, but there's no way, there's no method, there's no customs for grieving this. And I would come across people who had lost a child and think, oh, how can I even compare this to that? And there was just nowhere to stand. Right, right. And although it's not directly part of Dr. Boss's work, because of what you just said, Mimi, I want to bring up um, something I learned in another training, which is that grief contests are a cruel exercise. <laughs> and, you know, the comparison of grief, you know, the grief of having a loved one still living with SMI versus having a loved one who has died from suicide, that is a cruel exercise to compare grief. And part of what these coping strategies can do is unite us all in grief. Grief is grief. And how we cope with our grief um, can unify us regardless of the root cause of the grief. And so that's part of what society hasn't taught us very well that when someone's grieving, they might need a shoulder to cry on, a lasagna, a box of tissues, someone to come clean their bathrooms, regardless of the cause of the grief, right? So if someone dies, those are the kinds of things that people step up and do. But, but Friends and family don't necessarily step up and offer those things because they notice that we're grieving because our loved ones are really, really, really sick. Um, so, you know, it's a little bit outside of the coping strategies of living with ambiguous grief, but part of what I can share in this forum is we can all help educate our friends, neighbors, and relatives about how to support people who are grieving, regardless of the nature of the grief, regardless of the cause of the grief, recognizing grief as grief and stepping in to support and hold space for people who are grieving, regardless of why they're grieving, and recognizing that some grief is caused by circumstances circumstances that are extremely ambiguous, meaning there is no clarity or resolution, but that doesn't mean that the grief is less than, right? And again, avoiding that whole grief contest thing. Grief is great. You know, so, I'm, I'm yeah. hearing, I'm hearing two really important aspects of the work of am ambiguous loss and one is the one you're you're talking about currently which is how can friends and family support someone who's going through ambiguous loss regardless of what kind of grief it is and the other will be the coping mechanisms that you you're going to share with us that you yeah. that you is probably what you teach and you know, when this is in, in my book, but I don't talk about it on the podcast a great deal. It, there is the concept that I learned in family to family, NAMI's family to family of something called a second hit of stress. When the possibility for schizophrenia is there in the DNA, if there's a second hit of stress, maybe it's what triggers it. We don't know. But at any rate, when my son 
who I call Ben for public purposes, was uh, six and his little sister was three, their father disappeared, like called and said, hi, kids, it's daddy. I want you to know I love you. And then we never heard from him for 12 years. And we didn't know we didn't know where he was. We didn't know if he had died. You know, Ben would say, you know, is daddy dead or alive? And I would say, I don't know. And we we looked everywhere and we did you know, all sorts of things. And it would be 12 years of, and I would wish he had died. So we could have had a funeral. So we could have had something definite that people would bring us lasagnas and we could say, okay, it's a year since daddy died. Like I was jealous of widows. So mm-hmm. that was like my first, our first, me and my little family, our first ambiguous loss. And people yeah. didn't know how to support us even for that. And I imagine that's what Dr. Boss's book is more about. Um, but how wonderful that you become certified in coming to step in for TAC, which by the way, if, you, um, if you're wondering what TAC is, we mentioned it, we'll say it again, it's the Treatment Advocacy Center, uh, the work that you do for families dealing with severe mental illnesses, which is so, uh, yeah, that's sort of my my recap. But yeah, uh, that's a really important example of an ambiguous loss. Um, some other non non SMI examples might be somebody who's away at war. Uh, you know, any type of a missing person is going to represent an ambiguous loss, and deaths that come from really, really unpredictable and abnormal circumstances also represent ambiguous losses. So for example, Dr. Boss did a lot of work with family survivors of 9-11 victims, um, and those represent ambiguous losses, and a suicide death represents an ambiguous loss. Gotcha. So I wish that I wish that you would be giving this talk to general audiences. I'm sure you know all the things we do. The ones who are most interested are people like ourselves. But I wish that um, that the average person, and maybe Dr. Boss does talk more to general audiences, but that they would know this too, because I think that we all have a lot of friends who think we're lucky compared to someone you know, who, you know, I have a friend whose daughter died of cancer and she worked on raising money and raising awareness for her type of cancer up until almost, you know, right before she died. And that, it was just a huge outpouring of everything. Everyone knew that, you know, this beautiful young woman had died. And, and I think that there's a lot, a lack of awareness that the people that are dealing with someone totally different is is a similar type thing. I think you're right, Jerry, not to compare, but I was at that time jealous, you know, that she had such a good death when Jim was still there, but it seemed like he was kind of dead too at the time. He's actually- There's a lot of guilt and- and, Yeah. There's implicit blame bouncing around, you know, there's a lot of things that, that- that uh, contribute to that ambiguity. Mm-hmm. So then I would feel guilty that I felt that way about somebody else and or guilty that I kind of wished Jim, you know, had succeeded in one of his attempts because our lives were so miserable. But now I feel 
guilty because I feel lucky because he's <laughs> here and he's doing you know pretty well. Guilt? Are you sure you're not Jewish? <laughs> I was thinking the same thing. I think I think a lot of cultures have the guilt for the mother's guilt <laughs> right in there. Jerry, then. So, how does one process this complex form of grief when there is so little recognition of it? There are six coping strategies, and um, that's a great segue. Um, Dr. Boss makes it clear that even though they're listed in an order in her book, they're not they're not linear. So you can address these coping strategies, you know, in any order and, you know, all at once or one at a time or whatever. But I love what Mindy just said, because it takes us into one of the coping strategies, which is to normalize ambivalence. So recognizing that you feel lucky and guilty at the same time as a normal experience of emotion. That would be a normal way to feel in such a complicated circumstance that represents an ambiguous loss, right? So it makes sense that you have some almost wishful thinking around somebody who gets a little bit more resolution because their loved one is actually died and there's a death certificate and there was a ceremony, a celebration of life. Um, you haven't had that opportunity for resolution um, in the loss that you have. You've lost the son that you thought you had. You've lost the son that you had younger. Um, that's very much like a death with no resolution, right? So it makes sense that you have had some experience of almost envy over a mother who gets to bury their child, right? And so that, that weird feeling of envy mixed with the weird feeling of guilt mixed with the weird feeling of loss <laughs> is normal. All of that ambivalence makes sense. It's normal. So that's one of the six coping strategies. Um, Dr. Boss makes it really clear that it's hard because of the ambiguity and we can't fix the ambiguity, which makes the world feel like an irrational place right? We can't fix that irrationality that's coming at us. That's the ambiguity that we can't fix. So what can we work on? We can normalize ambivalence. Um, the other five coping strategies, I'll say them, and we don't have to go deep into each one. They are described in my video, um, but they're to find meaning, so that would be asking yourself, what have, what have I lost? And what does that loss mean to me? That's the exercise. Adjusting mastery, which is getting over the expectation that our relationships are going to be perfect or that we can be perfectly in control of all of our emotions all of the time. And we don't have to master our emotions. So for example, why can't I just get over it and move on, is an irrational, cruel question to ask ourselves. Of course, we can't just get over it and move on. Why would we be able to get over it and move on? So that adjusting mastery is the recognition that we're not going to just master this. 
We're not going to just, oh, I've got this. No problem. I'm going to be fine. You know, stoic, right? So if we think we're master of everything, we're very stoic, <laughs> right? So we're yeah, not going to be, yeah. we're not going to be master of everything. So we adjust that mastery and we let ourselves be human beings. We can have a little pity party once in a while, right? Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, reconstruct identity is one of the coping strategies. Who am I since this loss happened to me? And where do I now belong and contribute and and um, feel connected in my in my life? I'm I'm a new person since this loss affected me. So how do I if we don't reconstruct identity, we can get really stuck because it's like I'm not. I, I thought I was this like busy soccer mom, right? That was my life. I was a busy soccer mom doing all the mom things. And this roared into my life and my identity doesn't fit anymore. So if I don't reconstruct my identity, I'm stuck. I don't know how to be who I am, right? So that's one of them. Revise attachment um, means living with, the absence and presence of our loved one in a way that's very fluid. Um, and that one gets a little complicated. And then um, we talked about normalized ambivalence. The last one is discover new hope. And my favorite aspect of that is something that Dr. Boss calls playing with ambiguity, finding activities that have inherent ambiguity in them and just sitting in it. And one that she gives us an example that I think is super fun is fishing. So you go fishing. Are you going to catch a fish? I don't know. Is it going to be a big enough fish to keep? I don't know. How long are you going to sit there? I don't know. Right? There's so many unknowns in fishing. So that's a way to play with ambiguity. So those are the six coping strategies. I, I love it. And I'm, I'm, I was taking notes because I'm going to put them in the show notes as well as the link to your YouTube video. But the thought that keeps going through my head is a book that was out decades ago called Necessary Losses. Just, I don't know if you're, I don't remember the author. I'm thinking it might be Judith Bjors, but I'm not sure. But it was just about how, as we go through the decades, like, First, we're a single person, and then if we choose that path, then we're a parent, and then we're a parent of teenagers, so we're giving up being a parent of babies, and then, you know, or we're married, or then we're divorced, and we're always constantly um, reconstructing our identity. I was talking with this at, with my book club this, this weekend because... I am no longer the grandmother of babies. Like the youngest one is five and it's, you know, uh, I, I it's time to give away the puzzles that they can do with their eyes closed now and give them to another family. So they were always through life. We're always going through these necessary losses, but they're not all heartbreaking. So yeah. I was kind of lucky because, uh, I didn't have to totally reinvent myself when Jim got sick because I, where I get my biggest help is from advocating and I was already a state legislator and I, my focus, however, was education and I kept that focus, but I added mental illness. And so that changed, you know, a lot of my legislative agenda, but I already was there and that really helped me. So I was able to talk about Jim's illness publicly and that got a lot of other people talking about it. So I felt like I was making headway. So I didn't have to change what I was doing as much as most people. 
Yeah. You know, Mimi, I'm, I, I haven't ever asked you this, uh, you know, in, in your book, he came in with it. The, the self-portrait on the cover is Nick's. Yes. Nick's art, but you're a visual an incredible visual artist. And does your art help you to cope with ambiguous loss? Is that like an, an outlet that part of your identity that comforts you or? Yes, but not in a, really tangible way you know I mean it's just to me and this sounds I hate hearing this come out of my mouth but it's sort of like breathing you know it's just what I do and what I've always done and you know people ask me a lot with my book oh did it help you process everything and it's like no because they think well did you settle it and and there's no settling it but we each have our way of living and my way of living is making art and I do and I would never have said this out loud when I was younger, but I do now in my old age here believe that um, <laughs> that making art and the existence of art is the only thing that's going to save us. And I don't mean just us moms dealing with what we're doing too, but I mean human beings and I mean all the arts. So I, I, I view it in a different way now. So sometimes when I think, okay, what have I done with my life? Well, I remember an interesting conversation I had with you, Jerry, where I asked you, how do you do this? I mean, Calvin's gone. Isn't there, a, I mean, I'm just being really blunt. I said, there isn't there a part of you that just wants to get out of this whole, the whole world of this now? Because it's like, it's, it is kind of your ticket out. And you told me that Calvin delivered to you your dharma. And that's your purpose, your why you're here. And so I think that Nick did too. And my dharma is very much making art, but now it incorporates this aspect of who I am. But it's a very live thing, this kind of grief. You right. know, it's it's not something that you put to rest. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so but another one of... I'm so sorry. Another one of Dr. Boss's books is called The Myth of Closure. Mm. Uh, and and it's a really important aspect of the work. There is no closure and closure is a myth anyway. But when you're talking about ambiguous loss, it's especially mythological to envision that there would ever be closure. So I love what you said about grief being a, an ongoing process. And I I'm teaching that in my cohort groups who are working with these six coping strategies, that it, it's the processing of the strategies that is the, the work and it's ongoing. And like, you know, there are questions, they get homework every week um, and the, the homework has questions in it. And I've tried to make it clear that answering the questions is not the point. It's contemplating the questions. Mm. So the process of contemplation of those questions is how is how the ambiguous loss is processed and how these coping strategies become part of your everyday life through the contemplation. And I love that you asked Mimi about her art because each time I give a homework assignment, I provide a list of possible methods or considering that contemplation and the methods always include journaling, poetry, music, art, um, 
meditation um one person said they were they were doing the contemplations while swimming and i said yes that is me um i'm i do a lot of my contemplations while i'm surfing in the ocean um so i love that you brought up the art because yes that can absolutely be a mechanism or a tool for these contemplations that are lifelong and ongoing you don't check off the boxes and say oh i reconstructed my identity i'm good now i normalized my ambivalence about those two conflicting emotions so i'm golden you know moving on it's it's life work so jerry i have to ask you do you have in your classes mostly people new to mental illness or do you get people also that are like us but maybe haven't had a chance to process and they've been bottling it up all their lives what's the profile of your students that's a great question um and right now i have a cohort of 25 folks most of them look a lot like you guys um, most of them are moms of adult children who have been dealing with a severe mental illness for for quite a while um, but there are also siblings there are also um, uh, those who have loved ones who are life partners who have mental illness um, you have to be ready and I'm not sure somebody brand new to a diagnosis is going to be ready to do this work. They're still in shock, right? They're still in the immediate shock of their new reality. And they're not going to be ready to really think about how their family roles, rules, and rituals are all going to change. They're just trying to figure out how to get out of bed in the morning and get through the day and maybe make a tiny bump of progress and not slip. Right. You know? Or stay so, safe or stay safe yeah. sometimes. It depends on where they are. So we have about five minutes left and I want to make sure that I, I can just imagine so many listeners are like, how do I get to be in her cohort? What do I do? So I want to make sure that you... Uh, will fill us in on how people can get in touch with you and also to give you time. I mean, there's no hard out in five minutes, just giving you a guideline. But um, if there's anything else we haven't asked you about that you want to tell us about. So first, tell us how people could be a part of this wonderful cohort that you offer. One, one great way to keep in touch with the work of our Treatment Advocacy Center helpline and, you know, any of the trainings um, and offerings that we have is to join our Facebook group. So we have a TAC family support group on Facebook um, that you can join. And that's where we would push out information about opportunities like this. Um, you can also seek support from our helpline team by going to our website and filling out a get help form that's right there in the Family Resource Center. You can also send an email to help at treatmentadvocacycenter.org. So those are ways to get in touch with us. Awesome. What have we not asked you that you want to talk about? I want to read this because it's from the article that I wrote about ambiguous loss, and I think it's really relevant to this audience. If an ambiguous loss isn't recognized and supported, grief gets stuck. Effects can include depression and anxiety, 
hopelessness, a confused identity, ambivalence, insecurity, and lost trust in the world as a fair and rational place. And I know all your listeners have experienced all of those things because the grief that goes with having a loved one with schizophrenia or another brand of severe mental illness comes with all of that. So the first step, and this would be even for the newbies, is to just recognize I am experiencing ambiguous loss. That's what this is. It has a name and it's not because there's something wrong with me. It's because I'm a human being experiencing something that is irrational, unexpected, and without resolution. So there's nothing pathological about me for having a really hard time with this brand of grief. I'm normal. To be struggling with this brand of grief makes me normal under the circumstances because these are very abnormal circumstances. So a, an ambiguous loss is a loss related to our relationships, not something to do with an inability to like maintain our own mental health, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. We're not failing to maintain our mental health. It's that we are struggling with something that is so far outside the norm that we need help. And, and that means help from community, um, help in our relationships in order to not stay stuck. I I love that because one of the things I do when I'm not doing this, I have sort of a multi-potentialite life as many of us do. And I teach emotional intelligence on the corporate level. And um, it, the first two steps are self-awareness and self-management. And one of the things we teach is that when you can name the emotion, you can begin to have some control over it. So that naming, even, even with a three-year-old, if they can, or three or four, whenever their brain is ready to name the emotion is the beginning of self-management to say, I'm feeling jealous or I'm feeling, you know, feeling angry. And it isn't just sad, happy, and mad. Like there's many, many emotions. And the more you can, when you can name it, you can begin to feel like you can get a handle on it. And so having a name, ambiguous loss, I think is very, very powerful because if it's a name, and I'm feeling it, I must be normal, which I think is great because the worst thing to do is have this terrible feeling and then feel like you're terrible because you can't even name it, like you don't even know what it, or you're feeling two things at once or all of those things. So this is really, really important work. Um, I, you know, Mimi, Mindy, anything to, to add to close? I just want to thank you for sharing this. I think people will find it really valuable. This I could say a powerful episode. Thank you, Jerry. Yeah, I mean, I could just talk with you about this forever, but it's, yeah, I, I just encourage people listening to think about this and and look look into the information that we're putting out here, because if somebody could have taken me by the hand 20 years ago and sort of explained this, because you do, in, in, the, in the experience of having a loved one, especially a child, get serious mental illness, there are many, many, many times where you just feel, am I losing my mind? Do I not know what's real? What's up? What's down? And then our emotions are so haywire about it because it is ambiguous, the loss, that 
it's impossible to process. And I think that this will help. Yeah. I had a client reach out through Helpline recently who said um, their adult child was being hospitalized again for the fourth time in two months. And she said, every time this happens, it feels like a death. And that mom had never learned the term ambiguous loss, but she did by the end of that phone call. And I think mm. it gave her some measure of comfort to just recognize that calling it a death um, was valid. I think she felt a little guilty about calling it that. And once I had explained just a little bit about ambiguous loss, she felt validated that, yes, it is like a death. That so is what it's like. Kind of peels back the layers of the complicated way we feel. You know, I went from being the mother of two successful children to being the mother of a neurotypical child and a child that I didn't know what his still don't know what his future will hold. Still love him. Still, I mean, he's there giving his commissary food to the newbies so they don't feel uncomfortable. I mean, that's my, that's my giving kid, you know? Um, but yeah, that I, I love the, the six steps because it does deal with, you know, the, the change in our own identity and, and just feeling guilty about whatever we're feeling and all of that. So this is very important work. It's help at treatmentadvocacycenter.org, the Facebook group, TAC Family Support Group. And while you're on Facebook, make sure you join our group, Schizophrenia Three Moms in the Trenches. Just do a search and we'll pop up. And uh, and we, Jerry Clark, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Jerry. You're very welcome. I really enjoyed it. I'd love to share one more quick little anecdote. At the end of last week's session, a woman who's been very quiet the whole time said, watching all of you try on your emotions makes me think maybe I can too. Oh, wow. Nice. That's why we all got to keep talking. Hey, thanks for joining us for this episode of Schizophrenia, Three Moms in the Trenches with Randy Kay, Mindy Greiling, and Miriam Feldman. To get in touch with us or to learn more about our books, please visit our websites at miriam-feldman.com, mindygreiling.com, or randyk.com.